Welcome to the Energy Update for the week of May 25th, 2020, presented by the Institute for Energy Research. I'm Alex Stevens, and I'm joined by IER's Deputy Director of Public Policy, Jordan McGillis. Jordan, what do we have going on this week at IER? Thanks, Alex. We've got four articles up in recent days that uh, cover a wide range of different issues across the energy sphere. First, we had a piece regarding the recent scheduling of a closure of a North Dakota power plant, the coal-fired power plant Coal Creek, the largest, in fact, in the state. It's now scheduled to close in 2020 after four decades. This closure is the result of the new energy economics. Coal Creek is facing competition from low-cost natural gas, but it's also facing the challenge of subsidized renewable energy, which takes priority in North Dakota via the voluntary objective that 10% of retail electricity sold in the state be obtained from renewable sources. That started in 2015. So um, difficult situation for coal in North Dakota, and casualty here is Coal Creek scheduled for closure in 2022. Second piece worth mentioning is that as lockdowns ease uh, and parts of the world reopen for business as we hopefully move, move past the steepest part of the curve regarding the coronavirus, we're seeing some interesting developments in energy demand and in transportation in particular. In Madrid, Spain, for example, a city very hard hit by the virus, public transportation usage is down 87%. Driving, meanwhile, is down just 68%. So it does seem that people are quite a bit more comfortable driving in their, their personal vehicles than they are taking public transportation right now. It makes sense given the epidemiological risk of being in close confines with strangers and, and, very, and people that you aren't otherwise in contact with. So we may see this trend continue well into the future as people come to, come to grips with risks and perhaps tend more toward the automobile than toward public transportation. This will have significant ramifications in cities that have invested heavily in public transportation, Europe, Asia in particular. The U.S. has done less of that, but certainly there are U.S. cities uh, that have made public transportation key aspects of their urban planning. And that's looking like uh, it could potentially backfire here as people opt in another direction. Third up, we've got a piece on a recent New York decision, um, which was propagated by the Department of Environmental Conservation, which denied a required Clean Water Act certificate for a pipeline project. This is the latest in a long line of decisions by New York that are really hampering uh, the energy security of the state. So just as New York is closing down its nuclear capacity, it recently shut down one of the systems at Indian Point. It's also making it more difficult to get natural gas into the state. And then most recently on Memorial Day, uh, we had a piece by IER founder Robert Bradley, which covers the, the beginning of driving season as we typically view it, and takes another look at, at how we may see transportation trends change in this new coronavirus context. Great. And then one other thing I would highlight is uh, you also had a piece um, that was published at National Review on China's commitments to the Paris Agreement and the path forward there. Um, do you mind just talking a little bit about that article that you had published? Certainly. Uh, so the piece at National Review is titled The Paris Agreement's Beijing Problem. And my point here is that if we have a, a new president inaugurated um, next year, they're most likely going to recommit the United States to the Paris Agreement will certainly come under a lot of pressure to do so. And I just point out that the entire agreement rests on a very dubious premise, one that I think we should challenge. Uh, and I think a lot of people are agreeing we should, we should challenge more than ever. And that premise 
is that we can trust the Chinese government to cooperate with international agreements and to self-restrain on, on its industrialization and its, its continued economic growth. China has a, a long and pocked record on environmental concerns. One thing that's particularly relevant to the Paris Agreement would be the Montreal Protocol. This is the agreement uh, that I believe was signed in, 19, in about 1989, uh, maybe the early 90s, and that Montreal Protocol established a phase-out of HFCs and CFCs. These are the, the gases that can deplete the ozone layer. Um, by 2010, all of some particular CFCs were uh, agreed to be entirely phased out, so basically banned globally. But scientists in recent years have discovered that there's been thousands of tons of um, these particular gases seeping out of uh, somewhere in China, and they've pinpointed it to a couple of different provinces, Shandong province and Hebei province. So this is just one example of China demonstrating that it may give lip service to international agreements um, and to self-restraint, but it's not. it doesn't have a strong record of enforcing these agreements in its own territory. And then I think just as importantly, we need to look at what China is doing on the ground much more than what it's doing on paper. And, and what it's doing on the ground is investing enormous sums of time, effort, and money in building coal-fired power plants both within the country and probably more importantly abroad uh, in countries in Central, Af in Central Asia, in countries in Africa. China's engaged in what is called the Belt and Road Initiative. And the Belt and Road Initiative is it's a large foreign policy endeavor that is meant to integrate China more deeply economically with Central Asia, with Africa, with parts of, of Europe as well. And there are just incredible, staggering um, projects being constructed from what they call inland ports in, in the far west of China, bordering the Central Asian countries, to coal-fired power plants in, in Africa, uh, to ports in South Asia. China is pouring enormous sums of money and um, some very heavy, heavy industry investments into these different parts of the world. So trusting that China will reduce its greenhouse gas, gas emissions beginning in year 2030, as it's agreed to in the Paris Accord, isn't really meaningful if it's simultaneously setting up these other countries, such as Kenya, uh, Zimbabwe, uh, Serbia is, is another country involved. If it's setting these countries up for increased emissions, is it really doing you know, what it says it's doing to show, quote unquote, climate leadership? Great. Yeah, that article was published at National Review on their website. And then the previous articles that you discuss, as always, can be found at our website, instituteforenergyresearch.org. Jordan, thanks for joining me today. And until next week, I'm Alex Stevens.